As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned? So this man was born blind. This man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so the God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In his book, Toxic Charity, Robert Lupton tells the story of a mission trip to Honduras that his church was preparing for. I invite you to hear his story. With enthusiasm and energy, my Presbyterian Church missions team laid the groundwork for a partnership with a remote Honduran village. A bishop in that region had told us of their desperate need, an isolated people struggling with daily survival needs. Church leaders determined that this would be more than a 10-day service trip. They would make a long-term commitment to this village, build friendships and trust over time, have a true partnership. This would be both a sensitive and responsible investment of time and resources. On the initial visit, one need became obvious, water. The village women had to carry water from a supply source miles away, spending hours each day trudging in the oppressive heat. The church could do something about that and had connections with well drilling engineers. The church also had money to cover the cost. This was a desperate need that could be addressed immediately. And the church did so. When the first water was pumped to the surface and villagers filled their jugs with cool, pure water, there was a great celebration. There were cheers and hugs of joy and many gracias, senors. We had changed these people's lives. The following year, however, as the church's returning missioners rumbled up the dusty road toward the village, they observed women carrying water jugs as they had done before. Arriving at the village, the team saw that the well was idle. The pump had broken down, and there was no way to draw precious water to the surface. The ministry team knew what they had to do. They repaired the pump. Soon water was flowing into the village once more. But by the time the team had returned the following year, the pump had broken down yet again, and women resumed their toilsome treks. This happened year after year. The village simply waited until their benefactors returned to fix their well. This story is maddening, is it not? But so often it is the story of mission work or of charity, a good idea, a right heart, the right thing, dollars and time sacrificed, but ultimately for what? Today I'm going to talk us through 
learning where a community or a person is on a certain spectrum of development. And the three stages that When Helping Hurts lay out is this. The first stage is relief, the second stage is rehabilitation, and the third stage is development. So you're going to hear a good old three-point sermon from me today about those three things. Relief, rehabilitation, and development. We'll begin by talking about why a lot of helping doesn't truly help. It's because we apply the wrong solution to the problem. You'll understand what I mean as we go. So relief. Relief is urgent and temporary emergency aid to reduce suffering. A clear example where relief is the correct response, right, is often immediately following a natural disaster. And we even think about the natural disaster experience on the coast of North Carolina yesterday, right? There are going to be trained response teams that go in, like the Red Cross or like our United Methodist Committee on Relief, to name a couple who come in and they get people the essential care that they need in an emergency situation, care that they cannot necessarily do for themselves in that time. This occurs not only when times of natural disasters, but it occurs in places and in ministries like Interact that work with women who are victims of abuse. They need immediate care right then for their whole person. They're in a system, they're, they're often in a time of immediate danger where they need assistance right then. In these ministries and times, relief is needed and done for someone. People who need relief are not in a position to do everything for themselves and need outside assistance to help stop the emergency situation. And here's the thing, we encounter two problems when applying relief. The first one of those is this, when does relief stop? So in the example of a natural disaster, we're ready, we're ready to give relief immediately. I, you know, every time there's a major, major natural disaster that makes the headlines, there will be the donate here for the opportunity to raise money for the victims, right? And there will be the concert held with all of the big stars that are going to give up their time and will have an opportunity to contribute to it, right? You've had this happen many, many times in your lifetimes. But then we forget about it when the next thing comes around. If it's like a big thing like the tsunami was in Indonesia in the early 2000s, like it'll be a whole month before we forget. But eventually we'll forget and move on. And the work keeps on continuing like relief oftentimes in these settings. And the emergency status of a place can get prolonged for too long. The second challenge with relief is this. When relief is the wrong intervention. Relief, relief argues, but many, many who have studied it should be used in a crisis, but only in a crisis. And when helping hurts, they describe it this way. One of the biggest mistakes that North American churches make by far is in applying relief in situations in which rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. Do you hear that? We do this all of the time. It's well-meaning, but we keep doing things for someone or for a group of people as if the situation is still an emergency. We have a system for doing it, whether us personally or our organization. The people are used to it, and it seems to work well. When Helping Hurts describes this problem well, they say, for most people, the bleeding has stopped, and they are not destitute. 
Acting as though they are destitute does more harm than good, both to them and to ourselves. This does not mean that we should do nothing to help those who are not destitute. It just means that rehabilitation or development, not relief, is the appropriate way of helping such people. So let's talk about that second phase then of rehabilitation. That phase begins as soon as the bleeding stops for someone, as soon as the crisis is over. Rehabilitation seeks to restore people and communities to their pre-crisis condition. Think about what we do in a rehabilitation center, like for a person who's broken their hip. The hospital was the relief zone, and the patient was released because they were out of their crisis or because insurance kicked them out, but that's a whole nother conversation. So they were deemed ready for the therapies of rehabilitation, right? And the goal of rehab is to return them to walking and doing all the things they could do safely before they could ever come to the hospital. It's to get them back up to where they were, right? The story of the blind man in John 9 is an interesting one. Now, I don't want to focus on the theological problem that Jesus is trying to undo in this text, the question of whose fault the blindness is. Now, I want to focus on what Jesus does in the healing itself, right? What happens? Jesus goes, he spits on the ground, which in itself is kind of weird, right? Takes it, makes mud, puts it on the man's eyes, right? Now, Jesus could have just said the word, and the blind man would have been healed. He does this with paralytics. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead with just the word. Doesn't need him to do anything or to touch anything. He's going to heal people who are far away from him in another town with just a word. But what happens here? Jesus instructs the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus includes the blind man in his own healing. It may be tempting for us to see the compassion of Jesus as just doing for someone, but Jesus always sends someone on to go and sin no more, to tell others, to be a part of God's kingdom. So in this case, the man born blind ends up getting put on trial by the religious leaders, and he tells them the simple truth about how he was healed. I was blind, and now I see. So they toss him out of the synagogue, and Jesus comes to this man and finds him, and only then tells him who he is. Rehabilitation involves working with people as they participate in their own recovery. It is essential as we think about the values of rehabilitation then and development that we avoid what they call paternalism. What does paternalism mean? Think about how we treat little kids. We have to do stuff for them. We got to tie their shoes or change their diaper like, or you know, feed them and stuff like that, right? And avoiding paternalism means do not do things for people that they can do for themselves. This ties back to the God complex and dependency issues that we talked about last week. When the materially wealthy do things for the materially poor, it is usually paternalistic. And our problem is not just about our actions, it's about our theology. When Helping Hurts, they describe it this way, all of us need to remember that the materially poor really are created in the image of God and have the ability to think and to understand the world around them. They actually know something about their situation, and we need to listen to them. Hear that. The materially poor have the ability to think and to understand the world around them. I describe it as a theological problem because oftentimes the way in which 
we or our organizations tend to act towards people who are in need as if they don't have a brain or they cannot contribute anything to the situation. And the reality is that the people know their own situations and circumstances better than we do from the outside. So rehabilitation gets someone back to where they were prior to a crisis. This is not all we are called to do, though. Jesus calls us to pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And even if help in someone's rehabilitation, many people are still not experiencing justice. So this is where the third phase begins, that of development. Development moves all people involved, both the helpers and those being helped, in growing beyond where they were before. Development involves the community or the person being served taking the lead on making decisions for themselves and the community. I'll share some examples with you of development. In Toxic Charity, Lupton describes a classic food pantry situation. I've served in them plenty of times. The pantry has many rules and regulations that the volunteer workers are asked to enforce to make sure everyone's treated fairly. But the pantry often can feel demeaning. It feels like people have had to give up some of their dignity in order to come and play by the rules. He contrasts this to a food co-op that was just a few blocks away from the pantry he was referencing. In the food co-op, the workers are the members of the co-op. And at the time, they paid a $3 semi-weekly dues. And they would issue boxes to the members of the co-op who were paid up. Who made the rules? The members. Who enforced the rules? The members. Who selected the food they got? The members themselves. Who formed a community with each other and lifted one another up? The members. This is development. In both cases, hungry bellies were filled. The co-op model takes time and work to start. But we can sense the positive results for the members of the co-op. They didn't need relief. They needed development. A lot of our existing ministries of doing four do not need to be abandoned altogether. Once our mindset changes, we can ask how we can developmentally practice relief or rehabilitation. How can we change our practices to do things with people instead of doing things for them? Here's the difference a preposition makes, right? How do we change our practices to help do things with people instead of doing things for them? When Helping Hurts shares a story of a church providing a meal monthly at a homeless men's shelter, You've probably been part of doing something like that before with a Sunday school class or a group or a church. The church people did it all, provide, probably thinking they were serving like Jesus in that space. And the authors ask, how could we involve the homeless men instead in every step of the way? Could we have had them plan the menu with us, shop for groceries with us, cook with us, eat with us, and clean up with us? This involves a restoration of dignity in that space. This breaks down resentment that can exist between the helpers and those being helped. This is harder. It's harder, but we can sense the importance of it. Development is done both on an individual level and also on a societal level. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller describes the fa this phase as social reform. This is the level of justice where we aren't just teaching someone how to fish. I'd say that's rehabilitation. But we're asking questions and demanding change about the unjust status of the pond. Our work with One Wake 
is an example of social reform. This type of community organizing is an effort to create power through organized people and organized money. On Monday night, where we anticipated 350 to gather at Greenwood Forest Baptist Church, over 600 people gathered. This included 130 members of the Chatham Estates mobile home community who are about to be displaced. And those people gave witness directly from the pulpit to the candidates running for Carytown Council who will make policies that directly affect their livelihood. Here's why this is important. A lot of church work is internal. What will be best for our institution? How can we grow? What does the best for us? And this work with One Wake puts the concerns of the most vulnerable people in our community at the center. They are the ones guiding the process, not the other way around. We are working with them. They are partners in the work with us. This doesn't happen unless we are part of organizing with them. These relationships don't just happen. This is the work of development, creating a future with others who are moving towards justice and a vision of God's kingdom. So these are the stages of, of relief, rehabilitation, and development. They're all needed at times. But as a church, as individuals, and as a community, we have got to get out of the relief first mindset. And instead, we must truly hear from people what they need. Remember that well story in Honduras that I opened with? Well, Robert Lupton continues his story. He says, another remote Central American village had a similar need for water. They too were blessed with a partner from the United States. But this Nicaraguan village, unlike the Honduran village, received a mission partner with an altogether different approach to serving. Opportunity International, a Chicago-based micro-lending organization, commissioned a community developer to assist the residents in creating a plan for their much-needed well. She assisted them in finding information on drilling and material costs. She helped them formulate a budget and a rudimentary business plan. She arranged for a loan conditional upon villagers investing their own money from their meager savings. Then she connected them with a reliable Nicaraguan engineer and helped them organize a water commission to set fees, collect water bills, manage finances, and maintain their new utility. Village men provided all the labor, digging trenches, laying water lines, and setting 220 water meters. When the pump was switched on and water surged to the homes, the village erupted with pride. Their water supply, they soon learned, was abundant, sufficient to allow them to sell water to the local government school and negotiate supplying an adjacent village. They now owned and managed a wealth-producing asset. Do you hear the difference? One project needed perpetual fixing by outsiders. The other could be maintained and sustained locally. One project was paternalistic. The other was developed and operated by the community. One project mistook the situation as relief. The other correctly utilized development. Might we find the humility and the courage to work with people and communities who are in need as they set the terms for their own flourishing? Let's pray. Oh God, we hear the stories about development and we recognize that 
that the kingdom work that you call us to be a part of looks a lot like looks a lot like people bettering their circumstances and us being part of that and partners with that. We also recognize, God, that it is more tempting or easy to either give things or money. And Lord, we recognize that in a lot of those spaces where relief seems to be what we default to, maybe it's not the most effective way. So help us. Help us where we might need to just shift the how we do something a little bit, even when the heartbeat behind it is right. Help us to think about the ways in which we might help people developmentally. Give us grace for those spaces when we recognize that maybe we didn't do it right and that we need to learn from it. And also give us hope that indeed there are models and there are ways in which people are not stuck in generational poverty, where they might see the hope of a different way of living. Hope with you, hope with their communities, and God, the hope of eternal life forever. In Christ's name.